Hello and welcome to the Legal Aid Criminal Law Division podcast. I'm Gronya Marsden and I'm a solicitor within the Criminal Law Division of Legal Aid. Today I'm speaking to Dr Sally McSwigan, a consultant neuropsychologist based in Parramatta. We're going to discuss Section 32 of the Mental Health Forensic Provisions Act with respect to cognitive impairment and intellectual disability. In particular, we'll be looking at issues relating to the expert, the client, best practice when briefing the expert, getting the application over the line, and what to do if the client is found to be ineligible under Section 32. Before we begin discussing the expert though, I thought it would be helpful to quickly go over the legislative framework. The relevant legislation that we're looking at here is of course the Mental Health Forensic Provisions Act 1990 and the provisions relating to Section 32 of that Act. As most criminal lawyers would be aware, Section 32 orders permit the local court to divert people with particular conditions out of the criminal justice system. Part 3 of the Act contains the provisions regarding summary proceedings before a magistrate for people with cognitive impairment, mental illness or mental conditions. Now, there are some key aspects of the legislation which are good to keep in mind when considering this option for clients. First, a Section 32 application may be made at any time during the course of a proceeding. For example, it can be made prior to pleas being entered or following a hearing. I note here as a sidebar that requiring a plea to be entered can be considered to be an appellable error, although of course practically in the local court requiring pleas is often something that magistrates require. Secondly, the legislation doesn't restrict the consideration of the client's condition or impairment to the time of the alleged offending. The focus is on the client rather than the offending and the court looks at the client's condition or impairment either at the time of the offending or at the time of the application. Thirdly, the test is whether it is more appropriate to deal with the defendant under the Mental Health Forensic Provisions Act than according to law. And finally, if the court finds that it's more appropriate, it has the ability to do a number of things, namely to discharge the defendant unconditionally or to discharge the defendant subject to a range of different conditions. Now, two quick further points I'd like to make. Firstly, mental Section 32 applications are available in both the local court and the children's court and in the district court on appeal, but they're not available for strictly indictable charges. They're only available for summary, Table 1 and Table 2 offences. Secondly, there's an equivalent provision within the Commonwealth Crimes Act, namely Section 20BQ. This provision is very similar to Section 32 and is available for Commonwealth matters being dealt with to finality in the local court. Now Sally, the first thing I'd like to ask you about today are the definitions relevant to Section 32 applications, namely mental illness, mental conditions and cognitive impairment. Can you first explain to us where mental illness is defined and what we as lawyers should understand from the definition? Mm. Uh, mental illness is defined both under the Mental Health Act and under the Mental Health Forensic Provisions Act. Um, it means that it's a condition that seriously impairs, either temporarily or permanently, the mental functioning of a person, and it's characterised by the presence of symptoms such as either delusions, hallucinations, serious disorder of thought form or a serious disturbance in mood um, and also can be considered as a continuing condition. Okay, now the next, the next definition that's relevant for Section 32s 
is the definition of mental condition and the words that, are, that go with that definition which are a mental condition for which treatment is available in a mental health facility. What does that mean? Does it mean that a client needs to be in an inpatient somewhere or, or is that, does that have a different meaning we should take from it? Mm. Uh, no, it doesn't mean that they must receive inpatient treatment. What it means really is that the treatment that's proposed is evidence-based and it could be offered in an inpatient facility but it doesn't have to be. It can be a, um, something can be offered in the community. And what sort of things should be should we be alerted to as mental conditions that would fall under that section there, under that broad umbrella? Yeah. Previously, when the definition uh, contained the word developmental disability, there were many conditions that came under mental condition. But now that the um, definition has changed, cognitive impairment, uh, there are much less mental conditions that I would consider that falls under that. Um, perhaps one I could think of would be high functioning autism where a person is intellectually able but their social and adaptive functioning is very impaired. Okay, thank you. And then finally, and our focus for today, the last definition is cognitive impairment. Now I'd like you to explain if you can um, how that's defined under the Mental Health Forensic Provisions Act and then perhaps if you can to give us a brief description of some of the different subcategories of cognitive impairment that are listed. Um, from my understanding that there are uh, a number of areas that are defined as cognitive impairment. Um, you have intellectual disability which is a pervasive disorder of intellectual and adaptive functioning that is present before the age of 18 years. Often the person is born with such a condition. Uh, you've got borderline intellectual functioning which is that the person still has issues in the area of adaptive functioning, how they operate in the real world, but cognitively they're not so much at the, the lowest two and a half percentile, they may be in the around about the lowest uh, five to ten percentile. Um, in terms of dementia, that's an umbrella term that's used for progressive disorders uh, of commonly ageing. Um, when you think of dementia, you've got, uh, I suppose the most prevalent form is Alzheimer's dementia or vascular dementia, and then you've got less common forms such as frontotemporal dementia, um, dementias of language disorders. Um, You've also got acquired brain injury, which is a brain injury that's been sustained not through uh, an accident. It may be something such as stroke or a space-occupying lesion. Um, so Sally, you had then moved on to talk about drug and alcohol-related impairments. Yeah. Uh, so that's um, cognitive impairments on the basis of sustained alcohol misuse over time, um, but it can also include uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder which is um, after a, a pregnancy that's um, had a lot of alcohol use, the child uh, may then be left with um, disorders that may not be pervasive, meaning in all areas of their lives and they may have particular difficulties in uh, such with learning disorders, uh, impulse control, um, but it is acquired from the overuse of alcohol during pregnancy. Um, there's also autism spectrum disorder, and that's a disorder of social and adaptive functioning. Um, again, as it says, it's on a spectrum, so you've got people who are operating uh, intellectually, and they're quite able, 
Um, and then you've got people who are also profoundly impaired intellectually, but the hallmark feature is around the social and adaptive functioning. Now, moving on to the expert. So what I want to ask you about now are the, the qualifications of different types of experts and perhaps their approach so that we as lawyers can have a better understanding of it, that in terms of who we brief and how we approach reports. You're a consultant neuropsychologist and I understand and commonly see reports from people who describe themselves as clinical psychologists and perhaps forensic psychologists. Can you perhaps talk us through what those different categories mean and what qualifications are needed to fall within those categories? Mm. So as neuropsychologists um, we specialise in the area of brain-based behaviours. Um, we undertake a, a masters um, and registration after that. For forensic psychologists they've again undertaken a masters uh, in forensic psychology and uh, undertaken training, further training in that, as well as clinical psychologists have undertaken a masters in clinical psychology and undertaken further training registration. To call yourself uh, those particular titles you require endorsement from the Australian Health Practitioners Regula uh, Regulation Agency, APRA. Uh, that's a website that anyone can access and to plug the name in of the person that you're thinking about briefing and their qualifications will come up straight away and it'll say whether or not they are endorsed in that particular area and that means that their qualifications are passed uh, the muster to be able to call yourself that particular specialty. And can I perhaps backtrack for a moment there? So. I understand what you mean by neuropsychologist mm -hmm. and brain-based behaviours. Mm -hmm. What does a clinical psychologist focus on in the day-to-day -day practice? Yeah, so a clinical psychologist tends to deal with people who have um, difficulties with mental functioning, so okay. depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorders. Um, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And in turn, what about a forensic person, What a forensic psychologist, what do they specialise in in their day-to-day -day practice? Mm. So uh, often forensic psychologists are working in the criminal justice system. Uh, they are experts on criminogenic features of people and the motivations. Uh, they also understand in terms of uh, treatment and rehabilitation specifically for people who are involved in the forensic field. That's really helpful, thank you. I think lots of solicitors can get a bit confounded by those different areas and how we choose who we should be looking to brief there. Now, another question that commonly comes up when trying to brief a psychologist in particular or, or psychiatrist is where someone is already engaged with a treating psychologist or psychiatrist and the question comes up, should we be approaching their treating psychologist or psychiatrist for a report or should we be treat, uh, approaching someone, a, a new third party to write a report? And I suppose the question comes up sometimes when we're making that decision for ourselves or sometimes the decision's made for us when the treating psychologist or psychiatrist says that they won't provide a report because of ethical obligations to the client. Can you talk me through that a little bit? Mm. So in terms of being an expert, <coughs> as you well know, the, your obligation is to the court, uh, whereas a treating clinician um, has uh, obligations to the client and there may be some uh, difficulties around um, difficult around confidentiality, um, so as a and, and also therapeutic alliance. So as a treating clinician, you may find that they are reluctant 
um, to provide a report to the court um, when the client has previously discussed things that perhaps would not be helpful in a report. Um, so I suppose approaching uh, the treating clinician and explaining what you're seeking would be my first step because obviously they know the person well and they've got a lot of information. Um, but that being said, um, seeking a person outside that that clinical relationship is also uh, somewhat helpful because they're seen as um, a person that you're not going to develop a relationship. You're going to see them once off um, and although they have a treating psychologist it's terrific because that also enables them to, it's more easy to formulate a treatment plan when they're already currently receiving treatment. Thank you. And my next question, I suppose most solicitors understand that a psychiatrist is a medical doctor yes. and a psychologist is not a medical doctor but yes. has many, many years of training. The next question I have is how do we pick, when we've got a client who might present with a range of different issues, um, say schizophrenia and an intellectual disability or post-traumatic stress disorder and an autism spectrum disorder, how do we pick who we refer the client to? How do we choose whether we should be briefing a psychiatrist in that instance or a psychologist? Mm. Look, you're right, it's sometimes difficult to make the call when you've got people who have got a number of different dual diagnoses, you're not quite certain uh, what their history is. I suppose uh, I would be considering if a person appears to have a major mental illness with features of psychosis and they are not currently receiving treatment, um, I would be inclined, and, and the diagnosis hasn't been made, I would be inclined to uh, brief a psychiatrist in order to make that major mental illness diagnosis and to um, perhaps consider uh, the sorts of medications that would be required in a treatment plan. <coughs> um, in terms of a, a, a psychologist um, or you know, specialist psychologist, um, if the person is uh, suffering more from a uh, depression or anxiety or conditions that are not that I wouldn't consider major mental illnesses, you may find that a psychologist is able to um, provide uh, the sort of report that you're seeking. And the last question I have for you here in relation to the expert and the expert skills, I think something that can confuse solicitors prosecutors and magistrates and even district court judges I suppose is the mystery for us of psychometric testing. What I'd like to understand is how does psychometric testing work and perhaps how can we best explain the results to the court when for us it's a lot of percentages and sometimes that can be hard to understand. Mm. So psychometric testing um, I suppose is a sort of a, a broad definition of really undertaking uh, standardised measures in order to come at either um, uh, a diagnosis or to understand their clinical profile. Um, psychometric tests are often uh, standardised and they have a norm based. Um, in terms of explaining them to the court, uh, psychometric testing in terms of the numbers, it is difficult to understand when you're given numbers because the numbers may be somewhat meaningless. The but these numbers also tend to identify qualitative statements in terms of being mild, moderate, severe, and that would be the area that I'd be seeking the psychologist to um, 
make it clear to the court rather than presenting uh, the court with numbers that may be uninterpretable for non-clinicians. Okay Sally, the next thing I wanted us to focus on was the client, so their presentation and whether that could lead to a diagnosis. And I suppose what I'd like to get at here is often at court as busy duty lawyers, we might only get 10 to 15 minutes with a client where we're giving them advice in relation to plea and taking instructions from them in relation to their subjective circumstances if, that's what, if, if they're going to plead guilty that day. I suppose what I want your assistance with or your advice in relation to is how we as solicitors should be screening clients and picking up if they do have an intellectual disability or a cognitive impairment and might be a vehicle for a Section 32 application. And I suppose I think the reason why this is quite important is that sometimes these clients do slip through the gaps when solicitors are busy. And so lots of solicitors would probably find it helpful to have a basic toolkit of questions to ask at that first meeting so that you can make an informed decision and give appropriate advice to the client as to whether they might be an appropriate candidate for certain offending or in certain circumstances. So what do you think are the key signs we should be looking out for that a client might have an intellectual disability or a cognitive impairment in your experience? And what sort of questions do you ask clients when you're interviewing them? Mm. Um, so I suppose previous uh, granting of Section 32s or Section 33s, um, literacy. And I suppose I'll just chime in there. So solicitors, that's from the, ba the client's bail report. And in the client's bail report you can see the outcomes of a section 32, a section 33, or even a finding of not guilty mental illness. So that's all really helpful to be alive to when you're having a flick through the client's bail report at that first meeting. Yep. Um, I'd be asking them about level of literacy, can they even read the police facts? Uh, education history, whether or not they were ever in special ed, um, special schools, left school extraordinarily early, like sixth grade, first form, their work history, if any, uh, their income source, if they're on the DSP or on Centrelink that regularly gets cut off but they're not actually searching for a position because they're incapable of um, finding employment, if they've got any serious medical history or previous treatment or uh, medication in terms of uh, psychiatric disorders. Uh, collateral history is also very good if a parent is sitting with them or a friend to ask them if that's that's okay about how the person functions, whether or they are on a current NDIS package or receive services or support in any which way, anything I suppose that identifies that they are not operating independently in the community. And I've got a few tips that I've, in my experience from matters Sally's raised there. So in terms of literacy, I think asking them to read the police facts is really helpful. Another thing that's really helpful, because normally our clients fill in their basic green forms for legal aid on their own, obviously having a look at how they complete the, that form can be a real key sign in terms of their basic literacy and um, comprehension skills, so that's always really helpful. Another key marker in terms of finances, it might be whether they're receiving the disability support pension and what they're receiving it for. Another thing that pops up quite often is where clients don't have control over their own money. Mm. So they might be under orders under the Guardianship Act and that's another sign. It's not necessarily a sign that they have a cognitive impairment or intellectual disability, but I think more often than not it is a sign that something's at play there. 
in terms of serious medical history that Sally raised, I think it's often helpful to ask clients if they've ever had a head injury and if so, whether they've had time in rehabilitation after that. I've found often clients don't even think to mention it because it's something that happened 10 or 20 years ago, but obviously as a result of that, they could well have an acquired brain injury or a traumatic brain injury that they've had for an extensive um, period of time. Other things that might be helpful to think about is whether the client has a caseworker, social worker or support worker, or whether they've had one in the past to help them with their day-to-day -day life. And other things that might come up in terms of taking subjective instructions from a client could be, for example, if a client's um, not from Australia and is from has a non-English speaking background, you might think where they've come from, whether they've come to Australia as a refugee, how old they were then when they came, and whether they had a period in refugee camps, as that's often something that might go to a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. Equally, it might be whether the client has had prior involvement with the criminal justice system, not necessarily as a defendant, perhaps, but perhaps as a victim. Again, that can be a key marker of post-traumatic stress disorder and is something that's not that uncommon with our clients who've had very disadvantaged backgrounds. The last question that I think often is a marker for these sorts of things is whether the client um, was raised in care whether they, how old they were when they went into care, why they went into care if they know, and whether they were raised in foster care or group homes. All of those, um, all of those things can be signs that a client might have a post-traumatic stress disorder or behavioural difficulties as, uh, arising from their difficult childhood. And finally, I would probably add if for clients who are uh, more elderly, whether or not they have someone who assists them in uh, caring. So Sally, the next thing I want us to look at now is the best practice in briefing experts, which can be a somewhat fraught process for solicitors. I suppose the first thing that we should be thinking about when we're briefing is what the purpose of the report is, what we want from it. And that could be to obtain a diagnosis of intellectual disability or cognitive impairment, so where you suspect something but you have no material to corroborate it and certainly no expert opinion. Or it could be perhaps we're getting a report to provide updated information to the court about the client together with a treatment plan. So the first question here is about letters of instruction. So what tips do you have in terms of writing letters of instruction? What sort of questions do you find helpful and what are the best sort of examples of letters of instruction that you see? Mm. Um, well, I know that Legal Aid has a pro forma that uh, goes through the legislative tests and that would be always required and helpful. Um, the more detailed the instructing letter, the always the better it is because you understand what, what the solicitor is actually seeking from you. Um, in terms of making a diagnosis, it is often helpful if the solicitor um, explains that the psychologist should um, form the or, or give the basis of their diagnosis rather than just coming out with a diagnosis and, and leaving everyone wondering how did they come to that conclusion. Um, yeah, I think the, the, the more detailed the better. And I suppose the, the tips I'd add there from my experience is firstly a reminder always that a letter of instruction can be subpoenaed. 
So be careful in how you're formulating your questions. It's of course rare for that to happen, but it is something that you need to be mindful of in terms of what you're asking in your, in your letter of instruction. The questions I suppose we should commonly be trying to direct our expert to focus on for the purposes of a Section 32 application are perhaps a link between the impairment and the offending, although um, although it's not technically required, it's as we know often a prerequisite from the bench in granting a Section 32. Equally, I suppose it's important to note for the psychologist or expert where there's something that we don't want considered. So if the client wants to defend the charge and we're making a Section 32 application prior to a hearing of the matter, it's important to let the psychologist know not to discuss the circumstances of the offending with the client if the, or to at least note that the circumstances of the offending are, are disputed so that you don't get a report that traverses instructions you've previously been given. I suppose the last question I have for you here is if we think that cognitive testing is required but we have pretty limited funds and time for a report, what should we be telling you in terms of saying, well, we, we want this diagnosis but we're restricted to legal aid rates or something along those lines? Mm. Um, having a discussion uh, and, and letting the psychologist or the psychiatrist know that that's the constraints. I know legal aid does have some discretion and whether or not you can have a discussion around um, whether or not there, there should be consideration, especially if there's a custodial sentence being um, considered, uh, consideration around seeking further funding so that you can get a fuller level of testing. Alternatively, um, if the person has some documentation previously, the psychologist can undertake more brief testing, a screening measure. Um, and I suppose, yeah, ex explaining that unlike the civil jurisdiction insurance work where the reports sometimes are 20, 30 pages long, um, the, a Section 32 report, my experience usually is about sort of six pages or so, and then the psychologists know that it, it's not a report that needs to cover every single aspect of the person's background. Yeah, I think that's true. I think not many magistrates are happy when they receive a report that's sort of 10 double-sided pages on a busy list day. Now, the next question, I suppose, is the material that we provide to the psychologist or expert in briefing them. What material should we be providing? Mm. Um, well, of course, a letter of instruction, the fact sheet and criminal history. Um, any other information that the client is able to give to you in terms of documentation, um, discharge summaries from uh, hospitals, um, previous psychology reports, previous... Um, educational records, uh, anything to do with uh, support workers or care workers being employed for them. I suppose anything that provides a, um, a factual evidence basis that the, the psychologist can use to, I suppose, support some of the conclusions that they're, they're coming to. And I suppose I'll chime in there and say it might be, particularly if there's an, a an record of interview, either the disc or the transcript, yes. or CCTV footage or witness statements that particularly go to the client's presentation, it's pretty important to provide those to the psychologist and of course to try and assist the psychologist in saving time, direct them to what you think is relevant from those documents. Absolutely. Equally, in terms of that sort of third party informa information you might be able to get from the client, 
it's important to know that some of that information might be old information that's available by legal aid on old files, either in a hard copy form or uploaded to cases. And sometimes things even like previous sentencing assessment reports mm -hmm. can be really helpful yes. in providing that foundation material to give to the court. Um, the next question, which Sally and I were just talking about, is GIPA applications. So what do you think, do, do you find it helpful when solicitors have requested information from government departments? Absolutely. <laughs> um, it, 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 it allows you to have a, a, a timeline or a factual basis, um, uh, an independent assessment or viewpoint from someone who's been an educator or um, a, a care worker. Um, it, again, it's, it's a way of having uh, evidence in which to hang your um, diagnosis on. Um, and the clients themselves, especially if they've got an intellectual disability or if they've got a dementing process or to do with memory impairments, they're not able to provide often a, um, a, a truthful account of how things were. Um, so, for example, I've had clients who tell me that they were um, going to year 11, but in fact they'd attended one day of year 11, a couple of days of year 10, a <laughs> few days of, you know, so essentially they'd finish school at year 6 or year 7. So it, it is, uh, and, and also often school reports um, or GIPA um, documents contain previous intellectual assessments that have been done before the age of 18 years old, and that's very, very helpful in terms of making that um, intellectual disability diagnosis. And I'll just chime in with a few of my own comments here. So in terms of GIPA applications, it's important to remember, although GIPA applications can be quite slow in terms of getting documents back, the reason we use GIPAs instead of, say, subpoenas is that through GIPAs only we see the material that's produced. So it remains confidential to the client and we can choose what material we want to provide to the psychologist from that and also we don't, as I said, the, the prosecution don't see that material. So that's one important thing to note there. In terms of the timing for issuing GIPAs, if you have a client who you think is going to go down the Section 32 path and particularly who you're fairly confident has an intellectual disability or cognitive impairment but the client also isn't going to be a good narrator or doesn't have any corroborative material, it's really important to issue those GIPAs early. From the legal aid perspective, that requires putting on a grant of aid as we need expenditure to pay for the GIPAs, although they're very cheap, normally $30-ish per application. That being said, the main thing is that the timing can be slow. So it's normally about six weeks to get material produced. You can always hassle them and try and get them to expedite it or be really clear in narrowing down the application. But obviously, in terms of the timing for getting a matter listed for Section 32, if you want that material to helpfully assist the psychologist or expert in the court, you need to be doing that almost after your first or second appointment with the client so that you're getting the material that you need. The next question I have for you, Sally, is Is it do you like it when solicitors provide everything that they get or would you rather solicitors give you a narrower body of material that seems to be relevant in terms of saving time and cost perhaps? Mm. Look, I, I, I would never say no to more information because I know what I'm looking for probably uh, better than the solicitor because there are certain tests, certain things that I can easily scan through, um, several hundred pages of documents to search for. I'm searching for particular things and I suppose other clinicians be searching for um, you know, other 
particular thing. So I, I would always say the more the better um, uh, rather than having the solicitor attempt to go through it and try and work out themselves what's relevant. I think that's quite difficult for them. Okay. Now the next question I've got is in terms of the actual assessment itself. So obviously an issue that often comes up for us ourselves when speaking to clients or when obtaining experts is whether the assessment needs to take place by AVL or in person and also I know for some tests sometimes you need to or it's ideal if you can speak to family members or third parties. What can you tell me about that? Mm. So um, ideally you're going to see the person uh, face to face uh, as you've said, that's not always possible for some of the clients who are in those regional jails and often they're moved quite uh, fast between the regional jails so it's difficult. I do do assessments over AVL. They are more limited and you have to put that caveat into the report but uh, I suppose you, you do the best you can at that time. Um, just going back one bit to the letter of instructions, um, if you want the psychologist to consider writing a treatment plan, actually ask for it and ask for a high level of detail because when uh, people talk about treatment plans, the psychologist is not always aware of the level of detail required to um, assure the magistrate about the implementability of that treatment plan and it can fall down on that, le on that area. And I'm going to ask you some more questions about treatment plans in a moment. Um, the last thing in terms of those in-person assessments, just to remind solicitors that if you're booking an in-person assessment, to save money, make sure the assessment goes ahead, to make sure everything goes smoothly, you should be emailing sentence admin and requesting a legal hold placed on the client for the purposes of the assessment. Provide the date of the assessment and ask that the client remain where they are so that you can be assured that the assessment will proceed and normally that does get rid of any issues coming up. And to assist the psychologist if you are, if the client is in a regional jail, assist the psychologist by um, uh, organising them to go to an AVL room at the closest legal aid office. Yep. Okay, the next question I've got is where the report comes back and it might contain some material that you think is unhelpful for the client or for your application and that might mean that perhaps the client has made some problematic comments, say admissions to offending where no pleas have been entered or perhaps observations that there might be a propensity to offend further. My question is, what's appropriate to ask about changing and what's inappropriate and how can we approach this in the most respectful and professional manner? Mm. Um, in terms of asking uh, someone to change their report, I would be inclined to telephone them. Uh, it's a lot easier to have the discussion, I think, to explain the purpose and, and your point over the telephone rather than having the psychologist attempting to interpret it from an email. And um, I suppose I'll just add there as well, remembering that everything, all communications can be subpoenaed, that's also really important as you have to be very careful in how you frame these things, mm -hmm. knowing that it could go before the court in evidence. Yep. And in terms of asking them to remove things such as you know the client having talked about uh, offending that's, that's not before the courts, um, I don't think many psychologists would have a difficulty with that. Um, in terms of the likelihood or the risk associated with reoffending, um, I think that um, that's something a little bit more difficult uh, because, as you well know, um, the psychologist is um, their duty is to the court. 
um, whereas your duty is to the client. Um, I think uh, have have the discussion, but don't press the point. If the psychologist is of the view that the person is at high risk of reoffending by by whatever reason. Um, I think you're treading on difficult grounds if you're asking them to change that level of opinion. But have the discussion and uh, see what comes of it. And I suppose all we can say there as solicitors is if there's material that's really unhelpful and that the psychologist or expert isn't willing to remove, you need to make a call and get instructions from the client about whether you rely on that report or whether you proceed through some other route. Now. The last thing to talk about today is the treatment plan, how we get our applications over the line and how we approach them. So can you give me, I know you're really particular in how you think we should do this, can you give us your views on treatment plans? Because it is the case that many applications fail on the, on the treatment plan limb. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's actually um, uh, a decision that's on case law and I can look it up, uh, that actually specifically goes to the failure of a treatment plan. Um, treatment plans should be highly detailed. They should have names, addresses. They should be implementable. Um, I like to arrange first appointments, if possible, before a person appears uh, for their matter. They should apply all steps, whether it be you know that they should even continue taking medication, that they should continue um, uh, uh, turning up to NDIS planning meetings. I suppose what I see from a treatment plan is a really a step-by-step -step guide uh, that the client and the magistrate can be satisfied that they can understand, follow, implement and that it's um, uh, uh, designed to affect real change associated with the particular offending that they're before the courts with. And I suppose as solicitors it's always important for us to make sure the client understands the plan, agrees with what they're agreeing, with what they're undertaking to follow, Absolutely. is able to engage with the plan and is aware that if they can't, if the plan can't be implemented or if they're unwilling and they have no desire or intention to follow through with the plan, they'll be in breach of the order and could well be brought back to the court and re-sentenced. Mm. As part of um, what I do, I, I always assess the level of motivation. Um, I also make certain if I am going to refer them to anyone, I speak to that um, clinician and get an undertaking that they would report any breaches to the court and I feed that back to the client. I also make certain that um, it's affordable. You can't send a, a client who are on government benefits to someone who charges several hundred dollars an hour. Um, psychologists and psychiatrists do uh, have Medicare rebates, but some have gap fees, and that's really important to find out whether or not the client can actually afford the treatment that you're proposing for them. And if they can't, you need to find another avenue for them. And so moving on to the last question today, I want to ask your thoughts on what to do when a client isn't eligible for Section 32. So we've done the work, we've gotten the report, and for whatever reason we, we can't proceed with the application or the application fails. And I suppose circumstances where that might happen, say, could be where the client's presentation is such that they're just not engaged with treatment providers and maybe it's really unrealistic to expect them to engage. One instance that came up for me was where the client really needed an NDS plan and we needed to work, NDIS plan sorry, and we needed to work out whether to seek say a six month adjournment to try and get it into place mm -hmm. or whether to have the client sentenced at law and 
working out what the client wanted to do there. Um, what are your thoughts in relation to that, Sally? Yeah, look, I agree with you. I find um, probably one of the most difficult ones, if I think off the top of my head, are uh, people who are homeless uh, in terms of being able to implement any kind of um, treatment plan just from the difficulties, just from the standpoint that they are um, itinerant uh, and they often lack funds. Um, so I would be inclined to, um, at the very first briefing, even say to the psychologist, if they don't meet the criteria of Section 32, could you consider um, uh, writing the report or adding a, a section to the report that really can go towards sentencing in terms of mitigating circumstances around uh, the offending and, and the difficulties associated with getting a, uh, a criminal record. Um, the other thing you could, yeah, you, you could do is, is seek an adjournment. I've, I've done it once or twice when I thought the person actually was not able to consent to any kind of medication or treatment. Um, they were homeless and they needed some some assistance, and the adjournment was to in order to um, uh, get a guardianship and financial management order, and then to come back at that point and um, uh, when they also when they had um, sought accommodation, um, yeah. So turning it into a sentencing report or or seeking more time in in order to actually make a um, a treatment plan that will stand up to um, uh, going before the court. And I suppose it, for me to add in here, in terms of getting an adjournment, it's important to remember that's allowed for under the provisions of Section 32 itself or can be framed as a Griffiths remand, so time for the client to show progress before coming back before the court. And that's not uncommon with Section 32 applications and it's certainly not uncommon before certain magistrates who like to manage, an, manage a client and see how they progress under their treatment plan. In terms of get, using a report for sentencing, I think Sally's suggestion in asking the expert to add an addendum or include an addendum in their report when it's first written is a really good one. It's a very useful way to make sure the report you get is going to be helpful whatever the circumstance and that you're making the most of the expenditure of money for the client. And I suppose in terms of how we use those comments in mitigation on sentencing is really a matter for a whole other podcast. There's a lot of authority there on how mental health, cognitive impairment, mental illness are things that play into, play into sentencing decisions and we won't cover those today. Um, Sally, thank you so much for your time today. Everything you've said has been so helpful. I'm sure everyone will find the, um, your comments really useful in, how to, in, in improving their um, local court practice and improving their Section 32 applications. Thank you again for your time. It's a pleasure.